Welcome to Asia Rising, a podcast of Latrobe Asia, where we discuss the news, events, and general happenings of Asia's states and societies. I'm your host, Nick Bisley, the Executive Director of Latrobe Asia. In 2015, the gloss finally came off the Chinese economy. GDP growth is down sharply from its double-digit highs of just a few years ago. The Shanghai stock market experienced its worst crash in 20 years, wiping nearly a third off its value. And the government appears, at least to some, to have little sense as to how to manage these challenging times, vainly pouring billions into the market to try to prop up value. Joining me to dissect just what's going on with the Chinese economy and what it means is Jeff Raby. Jeff was the Australian ambassador to China between 2007 and 2011, and now runs Jeff Raby and Associates, a Beijing-based business advisory firm. Jeff is a member of the Trobe Asia's advisory board, and perhaps most importantly, has three economic degrees, including a PhD from the Trobe University. Welcome to the program, Jeff. Hi, Nick. My pleasure to be here. So let's start with the background. In the mid-1970s, China could barely feed itself, and today it's the world's largest economy in purchasing power terms, second largest in aggregate terms. What happened? How did we get from in a generation from that basket case to probably the world's most important economy? Well, it began in uh, 1976 with the return of Deng Xiaoping and the launch of the open door policy and reforms from 1979, an epoch-making event, 30-odd years of economic reform, uh, market liberalisation, opening to foreign trade and investment, and rebuilding the country after the chaos of the uh, Cultural Revolution and before that, the Great Leap Forward. There was a lot of catch-up, and China has been catching up for the past uh, 30 years. But as you say now, it's taken its place amongst the leading economies in the world. So what was key to that? Were there any particular sort of economic decisions that really allowed them to, to sort of make the world historical changes that have occurred? Well, it was the reform policies in particular, the government stepping out of the economy. It began with the agricultural sector. And what seemed at the time fairly modest reforms where farmers, peasants were able to make decisions about what to grow and what to sell. That was called the household responsibility system. It seems like ancient history now to say those words. There was the growth of village and township enterprises outside the state-owned sector. And this was all made possible through a series of price control reforms over a number of years, increasingly removing state control of prices seeing growth in employment outside the state-owned sector, rising incomes and wages, but also on the external side was extremely important. China, which had been pretty much hermetically sealed from the international economy, began to open up. There was a series of reforms along China's coastal littoral with the special economic zones. Of course, Shenzhen, the most famous of all, is a high-income city, dynamic place today, a centre of global electronics manufacturing. The irony is, uh, Nick, that I was first sent to China in 1985 by the Office of National Assessments, in part to do an analysis of uh, Shenzhen and what it meant and where it was going. And I slogged around the uh, muddy paddy fields in humid tropical weather after a downpour when there was no electricity that day, having to walk up four flights of stairs to the uh, Standard and Chartered Bank offices and came away writing a weighty tome for the Australian government predicting that uh, Shenzhen will never work. It certainly didn't have um, an adverse impact on my career. That might say something about how careers advance. But um, (laughs) clearly Shenzhen has worked and worked brilliantly. It's the whole story of uh, integrating the Chinese economy into the global economy. And in some ways, the external side of it's been the easier side, but it has to be accompanied by internal domestic reforms. And for reasons of um, 
political resistance, uh, people trying to protect the rents that they're gaining, power. The process of domestic reform is always that much harder. And you come up to today where the Chinese economy is very open, a great deal of dynamic uh, capacity, but they really now need to reform the financial sector. But it's proving a big challenge because this is really the last of the major reforms after 30 years that needs to be done. Shenzhen's interesting because it's my first time to mainland China as a boy. I was about 10 or 11 years old. We were living in Hong Kong at the time and I went across and the physical difference was like stepping back in time from Hong Kong into Shenzhen. Now you can barely notice massive conurbation, the physical presence. It's a real representation of how far China has traveled. But of course, as you said, let's get to today. Past really 12 months have seen a whole range of sort of bumps uh, suddenly appear that taken together, I think a lot of people outside the country at any rate think are indicative of some serious headwinds that the Chinese economy is facing. We've got the potential property bubbles and the stories about, you know, so-called ghost cities, you know, overinvestment in speculative real estate. More recently, the striking crash on the Shanghai Composite Index. What's happening? Is this a confluence of disparate events? What are these headwinds? Two things have come together. One is uh, an adjustment that's been required in response to the huge uh, expansion of the money supply through highly accommodating monetary policy that was the previous leadership's response to the global financial crisis back in 2009. Just as we in Australia went a bit mad and overexpanded fiscal policy, in China they overexpanded monetary policy and really pumped up the growth rate. But at the same time, uh, there was an accumulation of debt, particularly municipal debt, and as you said, uh, overinvestment in things like public buildings and offices, overinvestment in uh, commercial real estate, particularly in apartments, and especially in what's called the second, third and and fourth tier cities. So there is a a natural adjustment going on, a market clearing process, as it were, because of uh, the need to uh, reduce debt levels, wind back excess capacity that came as a result of that and tighten up on monetary policy more generally. So that's one of the big trends. But the other one is that uh, China is now beginning a phase of quite substantial structural reform and adjustment. For many, many years, China had an export-led model. Over the past four or five years, uh, net exports has basically been nil or negative. So China has already transitioned from the old export-led growth model, which basically carried it forward until the last four or five years. Post-GFC, post the huge monetary expansion, investment shot up as a share of GDP, getting as high as nearly 70% in around uh, 2011. Uh, Now we're moving away from that investment-led growth model very quickly to a consumption-led growth model. And consumption has now risen to about 45% of GDP. This is low by international comparisons uh, for an economy at China's level of development, but the trend is for it to rise rapidly. And concomitant with that has been the rapid growth of the share of GDP accounted for by services. Two years ago, services became the largest sector of the economy, accounting for 46% of GDP. This year, if the trends of the first half are continued, services will account for over 50% of GDP. So consider this, that the workshop of the world of the last 30 years is rapidly transforming into the service centre of the world. There's nothing surprising about it. It's what happens when real incomes rise. It's textbook economics 
And so that's why you see a lot of concern about municipal level debt. Yes, there is uh, excess capacity in housing, but a lot of these things need to be put in the context of the overall economy. The amount of um, excess capacity there is in housing is relatively small as a share of the total stock of housing. Each year, China needs to build the equivalent of the entire Australian housing stock just to keep up with demand. I think what excess capacity is there now will be pretty quickly soaked up. When you look at the sort of analysis, both the instant punditry, but also the more reflective and considered analysis of what's been going on in the Chinese economy, you've got the pessimists on one side who say, you know, the old model is broken and they don't know what to do. And the more optimistic assessment that you've been painting, I guess, is to say this is an economy that's in transition. What's happening is exactly what you'd expect for an economy that's moving to um, a different way of doing things. Even if left to its own devices, there's still a big role for the state to play. There's an important management process. What do you think are the the sort of key reforms that the party state has got to sort of put in place? Where do you think the priorities are and how optimistic are you that the government can um, pull them off? Well, I think the two main priorities of the government are those that I would say are the right ones. First and foremost, as I said just now, financial sector reform. And some of the gyrations you've seen in the Shanghai Stock Exchange back in June, rather inept handling of a resetting of the, uh, of the currency back in August. These point, to my mind, to uh, the pressures the government's under in trying to adjust a very rigid, uh, constipated financial sector to reflect the reality of a more market-driven economy today. Why is it important? Well, China's total factor productivity is declining. Again, this is what you expect. China needs to raise productivity, and to do that, it desperately needs to allocate capital more efficiently. And that's why the financial sector reform is so, so very important. They need to allow interest rates to allocate credit. They need a much more competitive and flexible banking sector, and they need to remove capital controls that keep the domestic capital markets insulated from international capital markets. Now, in all these areas, they're doing things, but it's hard to coordinate it. And at the end of the day, the leadership, which is so uh, totally focused on political stability, is always constrained in terms of courage to go too far too soon, lest that leads to some major financial crisis, a breakdown in stability. My view, having watched Chinese economic reform since the late 70s, is that they're feeling their way. They will keep moving forward. They have no choice, but it's going to be messy, and it's not in in a complete way that many outside observers would be hoping for, but it will certainly be better than doing nothing. That's a very key area. The other one is reform of the state-owned enterprises. It's forgotten too readily that today China is a private sector economy. More than 60% of GDP comes from the private sector. State-owned sector is now a relatively small share of total economic activity. It is, however, concentrated in a number of key sectors. Finance, and that's tied into the reform of the banking sector, telecommunications, energy. They're the main areas that are dominated uh, by the state sector. And yes, reform there is important. It is also uh, coming up against a lot of resistance 
as uh, powerful interests around those state enterprises seek to protect their benefits and the rents that a non-competitive state-owned sector generates. Yeah, so I was wanting to get at was this challenges the party state faces between, on the one hand, just doing economic reform, financial reform is, is hard, and you want to keep the social consequences of that to some extent contained, but then you've got the vested interest. And we know in any authoritarian political system you look at, one of the biggest problems you've got with reform is the set of political losers who have significant opportunities to block reform or even to prevent or roll back reform. Yeah. And we know Xi Jinping has put a lot of stock in anti-corruption and consolidating his position, but you know, there's often this, what game is he really playing? So what's your sense of the, the mix of challenges that they face between that sort of trying to control social unrest and then the vested interest in the party potentially blocking Xi Jinping? Well, I think just to make a final comment on the on the state-owned enterprise reform, what they've done historically is basically allow the state-owned enterprises to wither on the vine. So the fact that I can sit here and say that the private sector accounts for 60% of GDP shows how successful that policy's been. They shrink the scope of SOE, state-owned enterprise involvement in the economy. I also don't think that they're looking to abolish state and enterprises in the sectors that remain. These are what have always been regarded by Chinese old-fashioned communists as strategic sectors, as Lenin used to say, the commanding heights. And, you know, from Beijing, you look at South Korea, highly successful capitalist economy with uh, a handful of chaebols, Japan with its own conglomerates, and even Singapore with Tamask. And yeah, I mean, so... They've not got a vision of turning all these big enterprises into freewheeling capitalist businesses. So they're going to continue with that state-owned commanding heights. It's how accountable that becomes, and this is the challenge. And that's why they're experimenting with uh, Western forms of governance, talking about bringing private capital into some of the state-owned enterprises, uh, having independent boards of directors. And this comes to your question because I don't think at the end of the day there's really going to be a head-on clash over reforming these enterprises or not because they're not going to do away with their quasi-monopoly roles and and a lot of the rents. They're trying to, to make them more accountable, more transparent and to stop excesses. But nonetheless, uh, what she is trying to do is bring about a pretty profound transformation of China and the way China's governed. But it's not about reforming the political system. He's made it clear that political reform is really not his agenda. The anti-corruption campaign serves two purposes. One, actually clean the place up, and that's extremely important in order to achieve his number one objective, which is to rebuild and maintain the legitimacy of the Communist Party. And secondly, of course, he uses the anti-corruption campaign as a weapon in the political struggles that are going on, and uh, he uses it to dispatch and to cower his enemies. Now, People's Republic of China has long ditched sort of socialism and Marxism as an underlying ideological goal, but they're all Marxists. They've all studied Mao Zedong thought, Marxism, Leninism, dialectical materialism. So they know that when you change the economic base of a society, the political structures tend to change around them. So I was wondering where you see the political consequences of these shifts away from the old model. Do you think this is going to have longer run political ramifications? I guess there's a sort of liberal teleological argument that says once you marketize an economy properly and you make it an information society, 
in which services and knowledge and ideas are at the heart of it, you can't maintain authoritarian political system. What's your take on that? I think Singapore's done a very good job of that. That's you say, it's a teleological view, and I think it's got very little basis in experience. I think what you see happening in China, don't worry about the labels, these quaint, old-fashioned, 19th-century European labels, which have no basis in China of communism, Marxism, Leninism. These are artefacts from another age. What you see beneath that, and particularly under Xi Jinping, is a reversion to much more traditional Chinese ways of social and political organization. And whilst you can point to the Republican period in the uh, 20th century, albeit a very brief period, basically China has been run for hundreds and hundreds of years, millennium, by autocratic forms of political and social organization, autocratic, uh, benign, Confucianist, as long as you're on the right side of the rulers, benign. But this is what I see happening. And already, I mean, she has uh, moved beyond the collective leadership, which was so good for China in the post-Dung period, to establishing himself as an autocrat. And there's no longer a system of collective leadership. It's really one person rule. But there's not a sense in my mind that people really push back against that. This is, in a sense, how China's been governed. And there's a lot of serious scholarly types in China now talking about, and I'm not agreeing with this, I'm just saying this is where the debate is, concepts like democracy or authoritarianism aren't as important as concepts like performance. And that around the world you see governments which are across a spectrum of political liberalism or, or autocracy who rise or fall based on the performance of the government. And I know it seems like a stretch that a continental country like China could see a little island state like Singapore as something of a model, but the extent to which over the last 30 years Singapore has been engaged with China and engaged the leadership, I find it hard not to think that this has had a very strong influence on their thinking that there is a way to organise society in a soft authoritarian way provided the government delivers. That's why economic growth and performance becomes key requirements for the stability of the system. And you see that very clearly in the anti-corruption stuff, at least the the stuff that isn't just about securing Xi's power, but that if we want to keep people buying into this performance of the system, we've got to stop gratuitous putting the snout in the trough that you see often at that kind of local level. Yeah, exactly. I just want to change speed briefly and, and have a quick chat about the free trade agreement. So the now former Abbott government negotiated a very swift conclusion to a long drawn out China-Australia free trade agreement. It was certainly begun, I think, under your, under, under your watch. So I was wondering what your assessment of, firstly, of what the agreement is and what deal was struck, and then the sort of sense from Beijing about the agreement. Well, I think for Australia, it's, it's ended up being a remarkably good agreement, much better than I thought when I... Um, finished my term as ambassador over four years ago. I say that in particular because there are chapters on services, which at the time, four years ago, of negotiating seemed almost impossible that we would get. And uh, there's things on financial services, on education, legal services. None of it's going to throw the market wide open to Australian firms in the first instance. But the fact the Chinese were prepared to include those in the agreement 
That's very significant. And they don't exist in any other FTAs that China has negotiated. Now, I give credit to Andrew Robb and the team who negotiated. But I think there's also something significant about that. We were, come the conclusion of the agreement, beginning to push on an open door because China itself knows it needs to strengthen its services sector. It needs to expose it to more international competition. It needs to bring more foreign service providers into the economy because, as I said before, China's becoming a service-based economy. The other part of it is in agriculture. We have suffered for many years now a competitive disadvantage in the market because our competitors like New Zealand and Chile, particularly in important areas like dairy, sheep, meat, wool, wine, have all had tariff-free entry into the market and we have still had to pay tariffs. So we needed to catch up with them and to level the playing field and this is what's been achieved, albeit the tariff reductions in China will be phased in over a number of years. As for the perception of it in Beijing, it has had so far an important head-turning effect. It has made people think about the trade relationship with Australia. It's made people start to think about the possibilities of investing more in Australia. And more than anything else, from a Chinese perspective, what it does is give the bilateral trade relationship with Australia the imprimatur of the top levels of the Chinese leadership. So if you're going to come to Australia and invest and do business, you know that you have the absolute support for the top levels of the Chinese government. And even today, that sort of thing's important for Chinese business people. Fantastic. That's all the time that we have. Thanks for joining us, Jeff. My great pleasure, Nick. Uh, You've been listening to Asia Rising, a podcast of the Trove Asia. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe to Asia Rising on iTunes or SoundCloud. Thanks for listening.